Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! The climate crisis, the curtailment of reproductive rights, authoritarianism, these threats aren't looming. They're here now. If you believe Democracy Now!'s reporting on these issues is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of $5, $10, or even $20. Go to democracynow.org to make your donation right away. Oh, and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Stick with it, because you deserve the significant raise you need and other benefits. So let's get back who we lost, okay? We saved them. It's about time them to step up for us. President Biden makes history by becoming the first sitting president to stand with striking workers on a picket line. We'll get the latest on the auto workers' strike as Donald Trump heads to Detroit today to a non-union auto parts shop. But first, to U.S.-Mexico border, where an increasing number of migrants seeking refuge are crossing into the United States. The city of El Paso only has so many resources, and we have come to what we look at a breaking point right now. We'll speak to the head of the Border Network for Human Rights in El Paso and Chicago Democratic Congress member Chuy Garcia, who was born in Mexico. America is nothing without immigrants, plain and simple. It is who we are as a nation, and it's about damn time that we live up to our values and give immigrants the respect and the dignity they deserve. Plus, we'll look at the U.S. government's landmark lawsuit against Amazon and the growing Democratic calls for New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez to resign after he was indicted for bribery. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden became the first sitting U.S. president to join a picket line Tuesday as he expressed support for auto workers in Wayne, Michigan, in their strike against the big three, Ford, GM, and Stellantis. The fact of the matter is that you guys, UAW, you saved the automobile industry back in 2008 and before. You made a lot of sacrifices. You gave up a lot. And the companies were in trouble. But now they're doing incredibly well. And guess what? You should be doing incredibly well, too. It's a simple proposition. Just about being fair. Folks, stick with it, because you deserve the significant raise you need and other benefits. President Biden was standing next to UAW President Sean Fain. Donald Trump is speaking to auto workers today at a non-union auto plant near Detroit. He'll be skipping tonight's second Republican debate. Meanwhile, General Motors started hiring $14 an hour scabs to cross the picket line. In more labor news, television and movie writers are back at work after ending their historic 148-day strike at midnight following an exceptional tentative deal on a new contract with Hollywood studios and streaming services. The Writers Guild of America said Tuesday three of its internal boards had unanimously voted to end the strike and send the tentative three-year agreement to its 11,500 members for ratification. The new contract includes an increase in residual payments, higher compensation, better benefits, protections against artificial intelligence and gains on data transparency and staffing minimums.
The U.S. Supreme Court rejected Alabama's bid to use a Republican gerrymandered congressional map that includes only one majority black district. It's the second such ruling in just three months after the Supreme Court in June ruled the map violated the Voting Rights Act and ordered Alabama to include another majority black district in the seven-district state. Over one quarter of Alabama's population is black. A special master was appointed in the case and proposed three new congressional maps that abide by the Supreme Court order. A three-judge panel will select one of the maps. In New York, a judge ruled Tuesday that Donald Trump, his sons Donald Jr. and Eric, and the Trump Organization repeatedly violated state law when they fraudulently inflated the value of their assets by billions of dollars to obtain loans and lower their insurance rates. The ruling came as part of a civil lawsuit brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James and will force some of Trump's business licenses to be dissolved. Trump could lose control of a number of his properties including the Trump Tower, his New York City residence. It's a major win for Attorney General James, whose case against Trump is scheduled to go to trial Monday and will focus on alleged falsification of business and financial documents, insurance fraud and conspiracy. James is seeking $250 million in damages and a ban on Trump doing business in New York. Federal Communications Commission Chair Jessica Rosenworcel said Tuesday she plans to restore landmark net neutrality regulations that were repealed under former President Trump. This comes after Democrats this week took majority control of the five-member FCC. They'll vote on reinstating net neutrality next month, which would bar Internet providers from blocking access or throttling customers' connections based on how much they pay or which websites they visit. This is Rosenworcel speaking at the National Press Club yesterday. Broadband is no longer just nice to have. It's need to have for everyone everywhere. It's not a luxury. It's a necessity. It is essential infrastructure for modern life. Digital rights activists welcomed the announcement. The watchdog group Common Cause said, quote, to allow a handful of monopoly-aspiring gatekeepers to control access to the Internet is a direct threat to our democracy, unquote. The Federal Trade Commission and 17 states have filed a sweeping antitrust lawsuit against Amazon. The plaintiffs say Amazon illegally uses, quote, punitive and coercive tactics to unlawfully maintain its monopolies, unquote, allowing it to charge higher prices, harming customers and weakening competition. Among other things, the complaint accuses Amazon of burying retailers' discounted products so far down in search results that consumers are less likely to find them. The lawsuit could lead to a forced restructuring of Amazon. The Senate announced a bipartisan stopgap deal that would keep the U.S. government open through November 17th, as well as provide $6 billion for Ukraine and $6 billion in disaster funding. Senate leaders hope to pass the measure by the end of the week, but it's not clear whether it can break past the ongoing gridlock in the Republican-controlled House, where far-right Congress members have already threatened to remove Speaker Kevin McCarthy if he brings the bill to a vote. McCarthy's planning to repropose separate legislation that includes 8 percent cuts in social spending and resumption of construction on Trump's U.S.-Mexico border wall. 
Hunter Biden suing Rudy Giuliani and Giuliani's former attorney, Robert Costello, for the total annihilation, he said, of his digital privacy when they hacked, then distributed data from a hard drive associated with his personal laptop in 2020. Giuliani and Costello have repeatedly acknowledged accessing the hard drive's data. The information was used in a story by The New York Post implicating President Biden alleged corrupt business dealings, which have since become the focus of the Republican-led House impeachment inquiry against Biden. In Iraq, at least 100 people were killed when a massive fire ripped through a wedding party in the northern Nineveh province Tuesday night. At least 100 others were injured. The blaze may have been caused by fireworks used inside during the ceremony. Relatives of the wedding guests have been desperately searching for their loved ones. My nephew's wife, Rowan, and their children, Sharvel and Gazelle, all three of them, we can't find them. We were looking in hospitals across Mosul and couldn't find them. We're looking in all hospitals, nothing. They said in Erbil, we called there and they can't find them either. The death toll from an explosion at fuel depot in the Nagorno-Karabakh region of Azerbaijan has risen to 68 as tens of thousands of ethnic Armenians have been rushing to the border following a military blitz by Azerbaijani forces last week. Samantha Power, head of USAID, said the U.S. would provide $11.5 million in aid for the worsening crisis and urge Azerbaijan to facilitate access to those in need by humanitarian workers. Armenia is warned of an ethnic cleansing campaign in the contested region. Canadian lawmaker Anthony Rota resigned as Speaker of the House of Commons Tuesday, days after he led a standing ovation in the Canadian Parliament for a Canadian-Ukrainian veteran who fought in a Nazi SS unit during World War II. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky joined in on applauding 98-year-old Yaroslav Hunka. This is Anthony Rota speaking Tuesday. I reiterate my profound regret for my error in recognizing an individual in the House during the joint address to Parliament of President Zelensky. That public recognition has caused pain to individuals and communities, including the Jewish community in Canada and around the world, in addition to survivors of Nazi atrocities in Poland, among other nations. I accept full responsibility for my actions. Meanwhile, Poland's education minister said he's taking steps to investigate whether Hunka was involved in crimes against Poles during World War II and to possibly extradite him to stand trial in Poland. Officials in Ukraine say they're clarifying information over whether top Russian commander Viktor Sokolov was in fact killed after Moscow released footage of him in which he appears alive and well. Kyiv reported on Monday its forces killed Sokolov, the commander of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, and 33 other officers in Crimea last week. Israel's tourism minister, Chaim Katz, is in Saudi Arabia for a U.N. conference, marking the first public visit by a senior Israeli official to Riyadh as the two countries move towards normalizing diplomatic ties in a U.S.-brokered effort. This comes as the first Saudi ambassador to Palestine made a trip to the Israeli-occupied West Bank, the first time a Saudi delegation visits the region since 1967. Nayef al-Suderi met with Palestinian officials, including Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah. Good evening, Your Excellency. I am proud and happy to be in my country, Palestine, with East Jerusalem as its capital, God willing. Hopefully, next time or next times, we will go together to Jerusalem.
Saudi Arabia said it will only normalize relations with Israel if there's progress in the creation of a Palestinian state. And J.P. Morgan Chase has agreed to a $75 million settlement with the U.S. Virgin Islands in a lawsuit over the bank's role in financing Jeffrey Epstein's sex and human trafficking empire. Epstein owned two private islands in the Virgin Islands. J.P. Morgan did not accept any liability in the settlement, which will be split between legal fees and funding efforts to combat human trafficking. The suit, filed last December by former U.S. Virgin Islands Attorney General Denise George, also accused J.P. Morgan of profiting from Epstein's operations and failing to report suspicious activity. George was fired soon after she launched the lawsuit. She'd recently secured a $105 million settlement from Epstein's estate. This comes after J.P. Morgan Chase in June agreed to pay $290 million to settle another lawsuit brought by Epstein's survivors, who said the bank ignored warnings about Epstein's abuses for years because he was bringing in wealthy clients. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, we go to the U.S.-Mexico border, where an increasing number of migrants seeking refuge are crossing into the United States. Stay with us. Ya no estoy aquí. I am no longer here by Lado Negro. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show with an update on the sharp increase in the number of people attempting to cross the U.S.-Mexico border in recent weeks as thousands seek protection from violence, conflict, extreme poverty and the impacts of the climate crisis. This week, Mexico's government announced it would accept the Biden administration's demand to start deporting migrants from northern Mexican border cities back to their home countries. The move came after shelters in the Texas border city of El Paso said their overcapacity is thousands. Thousands of asylum seekers continue to arrive. This is El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser. The city of El Paso only has so many resources, and we have come to what we look at a breaking point right now. Meanwhile, immigration rights advocates have denounced the Biden administration for deploying more military personnel to the southern border and for not prioritizing humanitarian relief or addressing the massive backlogs greatly delaying the processing of asylum and immigration cases. A recent report by Syracuse University found a backlog of some 2.6 million cases in U.S. immigration courts. 
Last week, the Biden administration announced it's granting work permits and temporary protection from deportation to nearly half a million Venezuelans. Migrants from Venezuela who are already in the U.S. as of July 31st can apply for temporary protected status. The relief will last a year and a half. These are some of the voices of Venezuelan migrants who've recently arrived at the U.S.-Mexico border. We want to cross into the United States for a better future. The journey has been very difficult. We have been mistreated. We have been hungry. We have suffered. The children are tired, but we are going with the glory of God. We will cross the border so that we can do well, because our country is struggling. Harsh U.S. economic sanctions on Venezuela have largely contributed to worsening living conditions in the country, forcing tens of thousands of Venezuelans to flee. We took on this risk and this journey to escape the crisis in Venezuela. We prefer to die on our journey to the United States than to die of hunger in Venezuela. Meanwhile, thousands of migrants continue to arrive in cities like New York. About 100,000 people have arrived in Chicago and buses from the Texas-Mexico border. For more, we're joined by two guests. In El Paso, Fernando Garcia is the founder and executive director of the El Paso, Texas-based Border Network for Human Rights. And in Washington, D.C., Democratic Congressmember Chuy Garcia of Illinois joins us, longtime immigration advocate who himself migrated from Mexico, the first Mexican immigrant from the Midwest elected to Congress. He's visited a center in Chicago where some migrants have been received and in May sent a letter to Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas calling for expedited and additional funding to help the new arrivals. Last month, he spoke out after a three-year-old migrant child died while she was being bused from Texas to Chicago. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Congressmember Garcia, let's begin, uh, rather, Congressmember, uh, yes, Garcia, let's begin with you. If you can start off by talking overall about what's happening right now. I mean, I think across the political spectrum, it's clear the migration, the immigration policy in the United States is broken. What you feel needs to be done? Well, the uh, historic uh, interventions, military interventions, uh, the sanctions that we've imposed on different countries uh, in Central America, in the Caribbean, in South America, and of course the failed war on drugs are all important factors that are displacing people, uh, creating misery, and responsible for much of the violence, corruption, and impunity in Central America, increasingly in places like South America, like Venezuela, that is at the root of what is driving people to desperation. And they're coming home, they're coming to the U.S. seeking asylum and refuge, fleeing terrible consequences, risking their lives to get here. And we continue to have a, an immigration system that, of course, is broken. We haven't had immigration reform, a bill passed in 36 years. And obviously, we need to change our immigration system, and we need a system that responds both compassionately and that responds to the root causes of why people come to this country. Unless we do that, we're going to continue to react this way. At the same time, it's clear that we need to act multilaterally in cooperation with countries that are descending countries where we have a long legacy of, again, intervention and sanctions. And these are the things that are driving people to this country. 
Congressman Garcia, I wanted to ask you uh, about the different narratives that we're hearing about the migration crisis. Uh, uh, Chicago clearly has received uh, more than 14,000 migrants in the past year. But what we don't hear about is that Chicago has also received, as of June 30th, uh, more than 29,000 Ukrainians, uh, twice as many as the number of of, uh, migrants from the border who have come here. And yet we do not see any Ukrainians in police stations. We don't see any cries that the, the Ukrainian refugees are overrunning uh, the Chicago area. Uh, instead, they're being quietly integrated into the general society, uh, getting work permits immediately, being able to access government assistance. Uh, what about this different uh, narrative that's created of those coming from the southern border versus those coming from Europe? It's an excellent point that you make, uh, Juan. Uh, We welcome folks from Ukraine. We welcome folks from Afghanistan, from uh, other places uh, in Europe and other parts of the world. But it seems that uh, because of our actions across many decades in this hemisphere, whether it's Haiti, Cuba, Venezuela, Central America, and all of the interventions that we were behind, uh, even though we know very well why people are being displaced and are coming to the border, we refuse to have a system that treats asylum seekers more equitably, that welcomes them, and that helps to integrate them. Look at how much hell-raising we had to do to get the administration, the Biden administration, to respond last week by designating Venezuelans eligible for temporary protective status. This wasn't the case with the Ukrainian wave of migrants that Chicago and other cities welcome to this country. So obviously there is a difference in how we treat people and it's a part of the tragedy of a broken immigration system that doesn't establish norms and practices that are equitable for everyone seeking asylum and refuge in our country. And and how do you how do you feel that the uh, the newly elected mayor of Chicago, uh, uh, Brandon Johnson, uh, is handling the crisis? Because clearly there are many in some communities there's resistance, local communities to the uh, uh, to the establishment of shelters or temporary uh, housing uh, in a particular neighborhoods of the city. I think the mayor uh, of Chicago, uh, Mayor Johnson, is living up to Chicago's commitment to continue to be a welcoming city uh, and to welcome everyone who comes there. Uh, The resources that are necessary to successfully provide uh, food and shelter uh, for people have created a strain on the city's finances, in part because the federal government isn't providing sufficient funding for those purposes. The state of Illinois has also stepped up along with the city and is helping to care for these migrants. Obviously, the federal government needs to put up more, and the city needs to look at all of the options to make the integration of uh, and the welcoming of all these immigrants as humane as uh, possible. We continue to look for those types of uh, resources and solutions, and my hope is that we will do the right thing by treating people. But obviously, the surge and the busing uh, by Republican governors of people to welcoming cities like Chicago and New York is causing a strain, and it is 
pitting people against each other. While Chicago seeks to become a more equitable city, the uh, uh, the, the the increase of migrants uh, at this time is causing fissures with other communities and even a debate within the immigrant community about what we've done in the past and what we're doing now. Uh, that's part of the reason we call for work permits for Venezuelans and recent arrivals, but uh, as well for those that have been here for 10, 20, even 30 years and uh, remain uh, hopeful for the ability to work and obviously for a pathway to legalization and to citizenship in the future. What's causing this is our broken immigration system and Congress's failure to address immigration reform. We're speaking to Congressmember Chewy Garcia of Chicago in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C., where, well, it's possible government will shut down in a few days. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we're going to turn to another Mr. Garcia right now, Fernando Garcia, longtime executive director of the Border Network for Human Rights, uh, with us from El Paso, where your mayor, Oscar Leeser, has said that El Paso is at a breaking point. Explain the situation there. Also, also, the pressure the Biden administration has brought on Mexico to deport people to their home countries and what El Paso looks like right now. Yes, of course, Amy, Juan and Senator, um, good morning. Listen, uh, we are very frustrated here at the border, not only the organizations uh, that we work with, but also our communities, because what it seems to be happening is that there has been the recycling of crisis after crisis of the same institutional responses. And when I say that is because since last year, two years ago, we were demanding major changes to the infrastructure at the border, to invest more in welcoming centers, to invest more in welcoming infrastructure, to provide enough services, shelters, healthcare, education, water, food for, the, for migrant families that were coming across, and nothing has been done not by this administration, obviously, and much less from, uh, from the previous administration. So we are seeing the same situations over and over. In December, the same situation. There was a, an increased number of people coming. And then the response was either tough enforcement, deportation, or the acceptance of some of them that end up being sleeping on the cold, whether in El Paso in the streets. The same situation happened in, in, uh, in May also, where we had uh, no capacity. The community organizations and, re and religious organizations that actually provide some of this sheltering, obviously, they don't have the capacity, the resources and the money. There again, no major federal funding coming to build more infrastructure. And that is exact, exactly the same situation. In Juarez, we have uh, obviously thousands of people in refugee camps. But in El Paso, in downtown uh, Plaza, what is called the Plaza de los Lagartos, we had dozens and not enough, it's not hundreds of people have been processed already. They've been processed and they've been released in downtown and they don't have the means and ways to get to their destination up north because they don't stay in El Paso necessarily. But they don't have, again, essential services. They don't have water. They don't, they don't have food. They don't have a, any shelter. So, but this is the thing. I mean, the thing is, this is not new. We had seen it many times already. And we've been denouncing it even here in, in your in your in your uh, newscast. We've been telling one after the other that we need to reform a system that had been failed, and nothing has happened. 
But the opposite had happened instead, which this expansion of, of harsh enforcement um, policing against migrants. And now, as you mentioned, Mexico agreed with the United States to start deporting people from Juarez directly, from those camps, refugee camps, people is going to be subject to harsh deportation and detention. So the expansion of the U.S. enforcement only strategy is now permeating into Mexico, which is not new. Mexico is embracing also a very harsh stand against immigrants coming through Mexico. So the situation for immigrants overall is getting more difficult. We have a, a, a major failure of the administration to provide some remedies short term, but also long term. And I think it seems that there is no way to resolve it because nobody has the willingness to actually do something else that is not only political, uh, political actions uh, that are politically motivated. And Fernando, I wanted to ask you, because uh, all along the border, uh, especially in Texas and all those counties along the border, the majority of the population is uh, of Latinos. Uh, and there, as the border gets militarized, more and more Latinos get hired into the uh, the detention industry that's occurring there. What is the impact of the failure of the federal government to handle the crisis in terms of the uh, how Latinos along the border are are reacting to the immigration crisis? Well, I, I think you have uh, a different reactions and de depending on where you are at the border. But I think most of the uh, border communities, El Paso, Del Rio, Eagle Pass, uh, Laredo, um, McAllen, Brownsville, most of them are welcoming communities. What that means is that they come up and, and open their, 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 their wallets, they have opened their homes, their churches to actually provide some kind of uh, safety uh, in safe environment for, for migrant families. I think uh, there's nothing you can say about those communities because they are the ones providing enough resources, the limited resources, but enough to actually get support for these families. But this is important. What you mentioned is because the lack of, of a fundamental, sensible strategy in Texas has actually allowed, and I'm saying this is, this is very important, allow the state of Texas and, and Governor Greg Abbott in Texas to launch its own races, enforcement, and strategies at the border. So he has used this uh, human rights, humanitarian crisis, uh, in launch a political game, which essentially is using immigrants as part of the political platform. And, and he launched the Operation Lone Star, uh, uh, which is operation, this operation is deploying Texas National Guards and state troopers at the border, building border walls, uh, river buoys, all of these things to make the statement that uh, the border is wide open, which is not, but, I, but it's, it's causing a lot of harm in our community. So you, we don't have not only in, in, in Texas, the militarization of the federal government that we had traditionally had, had, but also now the new emerging actor of the, of the Texas state also militarizing the border. So I think migrants and border residents are being impacted by those strategies. Let's go to the border city of Eagle Pass, Texas. That's extended a state of emergency declaration as thousands of asylum seekers have arrived in recent days. This is the Democratic mayor of Eagle Pass, Rolanda Salinas. What's disappointing 
is that you have all these thousands of people just walking in without any consequence whatsoever. So the word is getting out. It's kind of a come one, come all type of approach. And you have all these people coming. There is no consequence. And I just want to say that I think that this is unacceptable. It's a shame that we don't have immigration reform and a solution to prevent situations like this. So I want to reiterate that this mayor of Eagle Pass, uh, Congress member Garcia, is a Democrat as he attacks the Biden administration and has continued to for the lack of response in the area. Um, so you have the racist policies of the Texas Governor Abbott, where you have this actual razor saws embedded in the buoys and people dying wrapped in razor wire along the bo- along the river's edge. Uh, that is just horrifying. But at the same time, Congressmember Garcia uh, in Chicago, um, you have this overall broken policy. What do you think President Biden needs to do right now? What can be done where you are? It's noisy now in the Capitol Rotunda. It may not be in a few days when the government shuts down, but what are you saying to Republican and Democratic colleagues about this? Uh, Well, members uh, of Congress have called on the White House uh, to do the right thing and help uh, get more assistance to affected areas. And uh, this is what we were asking for in the letter to the White House, to Secretary Mayorkas, the border cities that are the uh, frontline receivers of a lot of this uh, migration people in desperation seeking asylum need more resources. Cities that are receiving and have a welcoming policy like Chicago and New York need additional resources as well. Work permits would go a long ways toward alleviating some of the fiscal strain that these cities uh, at both uh, in the interior, Chicago, New York, as well as border cities are experiencing right now. Additional resources, funding from FEMA for food and shelter would go a significant ways to helping alleviate the crunch that these cities and uh, areas are experiencing. This is what I'm talking about uh, uh, that's being caused uh, frictions in communities like border cities, Eagle Pass, El Paso, uh, Chicago, and New York as well. While these cities are striving for greater equity, they're having to uh, take money out of their budgets to receive and welcome and provide humanitarian assistance and integration to these migrants. So additional funding would help, but at the same time, enacting immigration reform is a part of that process because the broken immigration system is being manipulated by cartels, by gangs, by other mafias uh, in throughout all of the countries where migrants are traversing and people are being manipulated and misled into thinking that if they simply get to the border, that things are going to be great. They're going to be able to get assistance and jobs and integrated into the society. This is the type of disinformation and misinformation that's being manipulated by forces that are behind a lot of the human tragedy and trafficking that's taking place given the current set of events and our inability in Congress to uh, enact immigration reform.
Congressman, you mentioned uh, uh, cartels and their role uh, in this, but we've had at least a couple of the Republican candidates for president, uh, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida and uh, Nikki Haley, the former U.N. ambassador, who've actually voiced support for sending troops or firing missiles into Mexico, supposedly to battle these cartels. Uh, DeSantis has gone as far as to say he'd consider using drone strikes. Uh, your response to this kind of language and how this affects the uh, the debate. This is a further Republican uh, devolution of talking points. You know, just a few years ago, it was only Donald Trump that was saying these outrageous things. Now it's most of the front runners or those seeking to become front runners in the Republican primary that are saying these terrible, irresponsible things. That's why I introduced an amendment in the appropriations process that would, uh, one, uh, reiterate Congress. Congress's War Powers Act and to ensure that we adhere to what the Constitution and those powers uh, that only Congress has are adhered to. And two, I wanted to, uh, through that amendment, return us to take a long look at our history of intervention and sanctions and the failed war on drugs, uh, many of the factors that are contributing to migrants coming to this country in desperation. In other words, things that we've done uh, for many decades in Central America and in South America are now coming home as part of our failed foreign policy toward those countries. That's why I introduced that amendment because I wanted there to be a real conversation about what is responsible and what is sustainable into the future. It is ridiculous to think that we would be considering seriously launching missiles into Mexico, violating their sovereignty, and of course ruining a relationship that is special and that should be rooted in collaboration and mutual understanding and of course respect with Mexico. These are the types of MAGA Republicans that are also behind wanting to shut down the government to hold the nation hostage to enact crazy, radical uh, proposals uh, like returning to building the wall, uh, ending, uh, doubling down on the amount of detention and uh, cruel enforcement at the border that could result in the separation of families, which was a part of the Trump uh, policy, and of course continuing to dismantle the asylum system and defunding the ability to provide legal counsel to those seeking political asylum in our country. Congressmember Garcia, Congressmember Garcia, um, you make this key point um, about U.S. foreign policy. While you have that Eagle Pass mayor saying people are coming here without consequence, I mean, my gosh, um, the grueling route that they take over many months, the number of people injured and who die, when they talk about them putting it on the migrants around without consequence, as opposed to the United States and the issue of the United States foreign policy and recognizing how it's driving people here. Your final thoughts on this immigration discussion as we move into National Hispanic Heritage Month. So uh, desperation is something that uh, is driving people to come 
uh, to our southern border. And let's not forget our responsibility in things that we did decades ago, uh, a few years ago, that is producing this. The latest has been the sanctions uh, against Venezuela, which has shattered the economy, forced people to flee to Colombia and some of the other uh, nearby countries. And ultimately, they've decided to risk their lives, to risk everything, crossing the Darien Gap, and if, again, being subjected to all of the trials and tribulations of cartels and mafias and corrupt government officials as they traverse in their dangerous journey through all the countries in Central America and uh, Mexico. This will not cease until we begin to work multilaterally with the sending countries until we uh, decide to change our, in, our past interventionist uh, policies as well as the sanctions that we have uh, inflicted on many countries. This is at the root of things. We need to work with countries in Central America and in South America. There are progressive governments there that are willing to do this until we treat immigration at the root where the conditions are displacing people and forcing people to flee, we're going to continue to experience these things. These are similar to developments going on in Europe as well, where people are fleeing. When you add climate change and the degradation of uh, conditions in these countries, they will only force more people to be displaced as they seek uh, refuge, asylum, and greater security. So until we take a more comprehensive approach to dealing with the root causes, we're going to experience Con these types of crises. Congressmember Garcia, we want to ask you to stay with us there in the Capitol Rotunda for a minute. I want to say goodbye to Fernando Garcia, head of the Border Network for Human Rights, speaking to us from El Paso. As we stay with Congressmember Garcia, we're continuing our coverage um, related to National Hispanic Heritage month, which goes from October, September 15th to October 15th. September 15th, the date that marks the anniversary of independence for Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. Mexico celebrates its Independence Day on September 16th, Chile on September 18th. Well, this past June marked the 40th anniversary of what many call the assassination of a leading Chicago labor and community activist, Rudy Lozano, who was Congressmember Garcia's friend and political mentor. Starting in the 60s, Rudy Lozano led walkouts to demand better public school conditions, more Latinx representation in the curriculum, also active with the Center for Autonomous Social Action, known as CASA, to organize migrant workers. Rudy Lozano was Midwest director of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, played a key role in building black-brown unity to elect Harold Washington as Chicago's first African-American mayor. Tragically, he was shot dead in his own home in 1983 when he was just 31 years old. So this past June, Chicago Congressmember Chewy Garcia, our guest, honored Rudy Lozano's life and legacy in a speech on the House floor. I rise today to honor a great organizer and community activist, a leader who fought the Chicago machine and built multiracial and intergenerational coalitions, my friend, political mentor, and compadre, Rudy Lozano. A labor organizer, he fought for workers' rights. As a community activist, he fought for justice for immigrant families. Rudy brought together diverse communities to elect Harold Washington, Chicago's first black mayor, in 1983. 
Rudy's new political empowerment was vital to improving community conditions. My presence in Congress and the growing number of progressive black, Latino, and Asian American elected officials in Chicagoland represents the enduring impact of his legacy. Let's continue his legacy by working in coalition to ensure a more inclusive politics for all. Que viva Rudy Lozano. That was a Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia talking in Congress about the legacy of Rudy Lozano. Uh, Congressman, if you could talk about uh, your friend and and uh, your uh, fellow uh, activist in Chicago, his importance, uh, the the role of Casa, and why why that legacy needs to be remembered. So Rudy Lozano is a product of uh, movements in the U.S. and certainly in uh, Chicago. He uh, was forged uh, during the uh, civil rights movement, during the movement opposing the unjust war in Vietnam, during uh, the time when the Black Panthers were making a significant impact in the black community. Uh, Brown Berets were organizing uh, for dignity and justice in the Southwest. Those movements were also present in Chicago through uh, the Brown Berets and movements to improve our uh, schools, movements that said our immigration system is broken and we need uh, immigration reform in Washington. People should have a pathway to citizenship. Workers need to be organized so that they can bargain at the table and improve their working conditions, uh, earn better wages, provide for their families, be able to retire. Things that are going on in our midst as we do this interview. We celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month in Chicago, uh, commemorating and lifting up the contributions of activists like Rudy Lozano, who were responsible for movements that have empowered Latino, African American, Asian, and other discriminated communities over a 40-year span. In Chicago, the organization that Rudy helped found, he was our founding our president uh, continues to be now the oldest progressive electoral and activist-oriented political organization in Chicago. We are bringing up the next generation of leaders that we have helped elect to the Chicago City Council, uh, countywide in Cook County, to the state legislature, both in the House and uh, the state Senate, as well as our, my new colleague in Congress uh, who joined us this year, uh, Delia Ramirez. Uh, these are all expressions of the movement for political empowerment, for progressive coalition building, and most importantly, for advocating and pushing for the adoption of progressive policies that bring equity and equality to all people. Uh, that is the life and the meaning of the legacy of Rudy Lozano and his contributions in Chicagoland. It is a part of why Chicago in 1983 broke uh, a race barrier and elected the first African-American mayor who was also a wonderful progressive. And it's also a part of the history and why Chicago has just elected another progressive mayor and 
one who is also African-American. And uh, we've changed the climate uh, in politics in Chicago. We disbanded the old political machine that was rooted in racism and sexism and corruption and replaced it with a new forward-looking, uniting progressive movement. And I wanted to end uh, and get your comment on, um, uh, end with Bert Corona, who started CASA, the Mexican-American Labor Organization, which stood for Center for Autonomous Social Action. This is Bert Corona speaking at an anti-war rally in the early 1970s. Thousands of Chicano youth are killed every year in this country by policemen's guns, and there hasn't been one single policeman ever prosecuted or brought to the bar of justice for having shot a Mexican kid in the back. You must understand that this is the, the request and this is the demand for equality of participation, for the, for the bringing together of black and brown and Asian and white people with the brown people in an effort to bring this war to an end. Because as Chicano says, there's a war in Southeast Asia but there's a war against me every day here in the barrio. There's a war with welfare and with the county hospitals and with the schools and with the drug pushers and with the migra and with the exploiting bosses and with all those forces that mean the American way of life for us. And don't come back to us and tell us if you don't like it here, why don't you go back where you came from? We could say, say the same thing to those who tell us that. Why don't you go, go back to Europe? That's where you came from. Why come here and exploit us? Uh, that was uh, Bert Corona, the founder of CASA, talking in the early 1970s against the Vietnam War. And, of course, CASA produced many leaders that went on to play influential roles uh, in the uh, uh, Latino community. Antonio Villaragosa, the first Latino mayor of, of the modern era in L.A., was also a member of CASA, as, as was Rudy Lozano and uh, and, and Chuy Garcia. The, the, the importance of CASA as an organization that raised uh, the consciousness of so many young Latinos. Well, uh, the speech that you just heard, the remarks of Bert Corona, uh, are uh, a speech that any one of us could be giving today as we stand with the United Auto Workers in their efforts to secure a better equitable contract and help uh, make a just transition in our energy policy and as it relates to electric vehicles, etc. Uh, this is the legacy that many of us are uh, heirs of, a legacy that we are seeking to uh, create and build for the future. These are the lessons that we have shared with young people who want to make a difference, whether it's in local politics, in national politics, or international politics. The issues that we are grappling with are urgent. Uh, they require the action of people who are forward-thinking and forward-looking and that push back against the type of extremist policies that MAGA Republicans who want to shut the government down in the next few days are trying to enact here. Immigration uh, measures that double down on building a wall, that double down on uh, detention, and that seek to dismantle systems of asylum 
that have been a part of our national pastime and what makes our country so unique. So the words of Bert Corona, Rudy Lozano remain most meaningful in our times as we grapple with climate change, as we grapple with immigration and fair migration, and as we grapple on how to make the planet more sustainable for future generations and as we struggle for justice for everyone. We want to thank you, Congressmember Jesus Chuy Garcia, Democrat representing Chicago, Illinois, speaking to us from the Cannon Rotunda from Congress, who knows how long it will remain open for this week. Thanks so much for being there um, as we continue to observe National Hispanic Heritage Month. Next up. President Biden makes history by becoming the first sitting president to stand with striking auto workers on a picket line. Stay with us. Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. President Biden made history Tuesday by becoming the first sitting president to stand with striking workers on a picket line. He joined auto workers outside a GM distribution center in Wayne County, Michigan. He made a lot of sacrifices. He gave up a lot. And the companies were in trouble. But now they're doing incredibly well. And guess what? You should be doing incredibly well, too. It's a simple proposition. Just about being fair. Folks, stick with it, because you deserve the significant raise you need and other benefits. So let's get back what we lost, okay? We saved them. It's about time them to step up for us. Thank you. There are now 18,000 auto workers on strike at 41 facilities across 21 states. UAW President Sean Fain accompanied Biden on the picket line. We do the heavy lifting. We do the real work. And though we don't know it, that's what power is. We have the power. The world is of our making. The economy is of our making. This industry is of our making. And as we've shown, when we withhold our labor, we can unmake it. Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump's heading to Detroit today instead of taking part in tonight's Republican debate. Trump is scheduled to speak to auto workers at a non-union auto parts maker. To talk more about the UAW strike, we're joined by David Dayen in Los Angeles, executive editor of the American Prospect, who recently went to a picket line in Ontario, California, where striking workers have twice had guns pulled on them by non-union truckers seeking to use a distribution center to move auto parts to dealers. David, welcome back to Democracy Now! I want you to describe that scene, but first respond to President Biden making history on the picket line of the UAW. 
Well, you're absolutely right. It was historic. I mean, uh, seeing a, a sitting president walking a picket line is something we've never seen before in the United States. And, and the contrast with Donald Trump tonight, who will be uh, at a, a non-union shop that uh, is he was there at the request of management uh, is is undeniable. Unfortunately, uh, some of the mainstream media are saying that he's talking to UAW workers, that nothing could be further from the truth. This is a non-union shop. Uh, and uh, uh, unfortunately, we're getting this false equivalence. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, the Biden administration has uh, you know, laid down a marker about uh, you know, what they believe should be a just transition for, for auto workers. And, and David, why why has it taken so long for a sitting president to actually uh, uh, put their actions uh, where their mouths are in terms of uh, striking workers? Uh, I think back at the uh, President Obama, who so many progressives uh, believed was a uh, a, a, a an important uh, uh, a progress for American politics, his. Uh, his auto task force guy, Stephen Ratner, uh, has come out uh, uh, basically saying it's outrageous for Biden to take to the UAW picket line and and uh, has criticized uh, the auto workers for uh, making uh, uh, demands that are, are considered by Ratner to be way out of line. Well, President Obama promised to walk picket lines when he was a candidate and then never did so as president. And uh, Steve Ratner was the head of the auto bailout, which forced concessions on the UAW, which they took uh, to try to save the companies in 2009. However, they're you know well beyond being back to health and have not received you know any reversal of those concessions. When I talked to workers in Ontario, they told me that they lost their cost of living adjustment. They lost uh, even a five minute break that you, they used to get to wash up. Uh, uh, you know, between shifts. Uh, so uh, obviously, I think I think Ratner uh, is a little embarrassed by the fact that he negotiated these concessions and they've never returned uh, uh, to to the workers, the benefit of the workers. And so that's the mentality and the mentality of the Obama administration and the Biden administration, uh, as far as uh, it relates to worker power, couldn't be more stark than with that comment that Ratner made. And I wanted to ask you about the strategy of the United Auto Workers this time around. It's been very uh, unusual compared to previous uh, labor conflicts in that they haven't chosen to send all of the auto workers out on strike at the same time, but have chosen key plants or sectors of the auto industry to uh, uh, go out on the street. The result has been, because as you know, strikes, if they last a long time, they tend to fade in the public consciousness and in the media. But by continuing to keep the industry uh, uh, not not knowing exactly what their next move will be, it's also kept the strike in the public eye. Exactly. And uh, I think when I talk to workers, they appreciate it. It's kept the uh, companies off balance. Um, it has enabled the UAW to play one company off the other. In the second round of this stand-up strike, uh, they went out at uh, parts distribution centers for GM and Stellantis, but they said, well, look, we're we're making good progress in negotiations with Ford, so we won't uh, strike those Ford distribution centers. 
so uh, it's it's allowed them to sort of pit the companies against one another. It's uh, uh, kept the companies guessing to where uh, this problem is going to uh, occur uh, in terms of their logistics network, their 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 workflow. Uh, and, uh, you know, it has it has uh, these benefits that you talk about in terms of uh, keeping the, uh, the the strike in the public eye. Mm-hmm. And uh, so until there's an agreement at the bargaining table, I expect this uh, to continue. David Day, and we just have a minute. I want to ask you two questions. One about the guns being drawn on workers on the picket line in Ontario, California, and the other on the close relationship between Mary Barra, who is CEO of General Motors, where President Biden chose to stand with the striking workers. She's been to the White House something like eight times uh, since he's become president. He's cultivated that relationship with her as she leads the EV transition that auto workers are concerned about. Yeah. So uh, where I went to in in Ontario, uh, it's a parts distribution center for Stellantis. And uh, the the truck drivers go into the uh, facility to exchange goods so that they get out. We have 15 seconds. Sorry, David. You got it. Okay. So uh, these are non-union truckers. They're uh, the Teamsters won't cross the picket line. They uh, and and so what happened is that the, the picketers block the entrance to the doors. On two occasions, guns have been drawn. Uh, fortunately, no violence. But well, uh, the, the, there's, there's uh, a lot Dayan, of... David uh, Dayan, we're going to have to leave it project. there. Uh, but continue the conversation.